Hello, and welcome to Truth and Learning, episode number three. I'm Matt Richter, and I'm here with my colleague, my friend, my mentor, Will Tallheimer. Hi, Will. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm beautiful. It's the middle of the summer, and things are sweet. And I hear you went kayaking in a canoe and didn't drown. Well, I went canoeing in a canoe. And didn't drown. <laughs> I didn't drown, although I... It was it was on the ocean, and it did. There was a couple times when I got a little frightened, but really, yeah, wow, wow, you're Li living large, living on the line. You live dangerously, my friend. That's right. So, uh, anyway, today I'm I'm excited because we're going to do three segments again, and for our third segment, we're going to be joined by my business partner and my my real mentor and teacher and friend. Tiagi, and uh, I don't mean to imply you're not my real friend. I am a real friend. Yeah, you are. I am real. I'm not an imagination. <laughs> I know. You know, the first time we met in Barcelona, I had to, to poke you to see if you truly were real. <laughs> so, um, anyway, he's going to join us for our third segment, uh, uh, and we're going to talk with him about what should we call ourselves. And That's awesome. And I, I think that's a, it's a highly relevant topic right now because we keep running into people who are constantly debating this topic and questioning whether the industry is indeed in flux and we need to reevaluate the, the labels we use for it and ourselves. And, uh, and I think uh, Tiagi is going to have an interesting perspective. Oh, I bet he does. I mean, he's been around a while. He's seen a lot of things, so that'll be great. Are you calling him old? Well, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm old. <laughs> You're old. What do you mean? I'm the youngest of everyone here. I know, I know. So I'm, I'm like half your age, aren't I? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway. So, but our first two topics, um, one is uh, a conversation we wanted to have about NPS. What is NPS? NPS huh? is, is uh, an acronym for Net Promoter Score. And, and this, is, this is like a, a big thing coming up again, right? It's, yeah, it's rearing its ugly head. So originally it was developed in the marketing field to really get a sense of people's sort of loyalty to the brand. So you put a, a scale from zero to 10, so 11 items, and you say, uh, how likely are you to recommend our product to your friends or colleagues or whatever? All right. And then if you get, you know, if you're a net promoter, you're at the high end, you give people a nine or 10, that's really good. And then all the marketing people go, ooh, great, 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 great. Now, people have taken that marketing concept and brought it into training to use it on our uh, learner surveys. Ah, brilliant. Another way to move away from learning outcomes. Yes. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. Our second segment is, is it okay for us to disagree with each other in this field of learning? Are we allowed to, to have debates about different subject matters? Are we uh, able to support each other, but at the same time say, oh my gosh, you are a total idiot. I can't believe how wrong you are about X. Uh, and 
what does it mean for us to disagree? Um, do, is it because we have different beliefs about what we're doing, or is it more that we have uh, a, a complete delusion about what the evidence is sharing with us and so forth? So we're going to talk about what it means to have a disagreement and how we go about doing that. Sounds so, awesome. All right. So before we dive into these, anything to catch us up on? Uh, anything fun happening other than you didn't drown uh, over the uh, last week? Uh, well, um, I am, well, the big thing happening in our family right now is that my daughter, who's 16, is off in Spain. And oh my gosh. hanging out with a friend and the friend's parent, and she's gonna, you know, well, she showed me a picture of her on the beach today, beautiful blue skies. But they're, she's gonna do a little Spanish language learning as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, to me, it's like a great cultural education. Wish I had one like that when I was young. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure my school would have happily sent me out of the country. So, <laughs> so okay, cool. For, for us, we are in the summer of house guests. So we uh, have um, a friend of ours, son, who's with us for the next week. And, in fact, he's living in my office. So if you... We're able to look into my office right now. You'd see my office has been converted into a young uh, teenage boy's room. And, uh, and socks everywhere, uh, bedding everywhere. I think I tripped on a bottle of water somewhere. You got a, you got a game console? Where there is a, well, he's got his iPad, so okay. it's okay. So, and then next week we have friends from Brussels coming in. And after that, we have friends from uh, London coming in. So this is, so I, I, that explains how, why you didn't invite me. I, cause you are totally invited. You're totally invited. Come join the party, bring food though. So, <laughs> so <laughs> we definitely need food. So anyway, shall we dive in? Let's go. All right. Net Promoter Score. So you, you gave us a, a quick overview of what it is, but um, uh, uh, how pervasive is NPS in the not just in the training industry but in business in general? Well, I mean, uh, what is it? Give, us a, give us some context on, on right. why this is huge. So first of all, uh, I am going to confess that I have not been in every business in the world or in the country. Uh, but my understanding is it's very well liked by a lot of companies. And, uh, you know, I hear from the people in the L and D field and they tell me their senior management loves Ellen loves NPS. And so we should use it in training as well because it'll be relatable. Uh, in terms of, NPS in the training and development field, um, you know, I'm out speaking all the time about learning evaluation. And, and the one thing I hear over and over is, oh, we're, we're using NPS. So uh, it's very prevalent. It's being used an awful lot. Um, I don't know if it's going up or down. I don't have numbers on that. But uh, a lot of the people I talk with are using it or are forced to use it or are told or encouraged to use it. So 
That's why we're talking about it. So I, I get completely the the idea behind it, right? In a in a product development environment or in a service based environment, it makes complete sense to ask customers to rate their experience with the organization and with the team or to rate their their perspective on a product. That makes complete sense because it's it's related to marketing, it's related to the bottom line around sales, it's related to uh, how to uh, expand your customer base and so forth. These are hardcore business metrics that are directly related to making money. I think the problem is extrapolating that into a learning environment where the outcomes are different. Would you agree? That in Absolutely. My, it, it's, you know, why, why do we do this kind of thing? I mean, don't, don't we have good enough tools in the learning space that we have to go outside every time and get somebody else's tool? And, you know, if, you know, we should do that where it's relevant, but most of the time it's not relevant. And here we are doing it again. But we're doing it, by the way, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that it's a, it's a complete misapplication, but the intention behind it makes sense. Uh, the idea to me is that uh, whoever is making these decisions, absent an understanding of how learning actually happens, and absent an understanding on who should be making these decisions about whether learning happened, is thinking that the learners are customers and trying to evaluate their experience, right? And to see how they would evaluate it more effectively. Yeah, so yeah. Their intent makes sense, right? Absolutely. And uh, I have heard uh, Donald Kirkpatrick in the flesh say that level one uh, smile sheets were, um, were really a customer, a customer satisfaction rating. So, yes, there's a long history of this in our space. Yeah. So now, having agreed on the intent being positive, now let's tear it apart for being stupid. <laughs> okay. Right? Well, yeah. Well, later we're going to talk about how, how we should disagree about things. Not you and me, but how we in the field should disagree. I agree with you about everything except me. Uh, yeah. Music, I don't understand your taste. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, okay, background, everybody. We're, you know, we debated about what the name should be. We finally come to a conclusion on that, and now we're debating about what music we should use. So you guys may get some really weird music at first. I want to pay Cheap Trick to write our theme song. Okay, well, that's... Wait, you're, up, you're open to that? I don't know. I have to go back through my cheap trick collection. <clears throat> well, I have them all. You can borrow I, them. I'd rather have Springsteen do it. Who? Man of the people. Wait, Come who's, on. Spring, who's Springsteen? Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are we talking about? NPS. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, what was your question? So my, my question is that, uh, that we understand the intent, but there's an inherent flaw in looking at at learners evaluating their experience as clients. Okay. Well, there's nothing wrong with it in some sense, right? Okay. Because we do need to uh, get a sense of the reputation of our learning interventions, right? It's very important that we have relatively good reputations, that people are generally satisfied. That's important. So we ought to figure out a way to do that. 
Um, but what happens is that should not be our primary metric. In fact, if you look at the research, there's very good research on this. There's meta-analyses, several of them, they showed that when we look at learner satisfaction, when we look at learners rating the reputation of the course, that the correlations with learning effectiveness are just not there. They're very low, virtually non-existent. So, Before you go on, though, the reason for that is? Well, um, there's many reasons for that. Uh, the big reason is that uh, effectiveness is not always uh, related with whether people like it. You can like something and it not be very useful for you, right? I mean, I like ice cream, like cocaine, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a better example. <laughs> we are so, not advocating cocaine use. Cocaine run all around my brain. Okay. Okay. Will is not going to sing again. I promise. Oh, Drop. <laughs> That's why I'm doing this, man. I want to be on radio. You would uh, totally have a face for radio. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, that is the third. That is the third podcast I made that joke. I'm going to try and do it for the first 100. Oh my god! All right. Uh, so look, it, focus, Will. Come on, focus. Well, how can, how can I focus? There's all these distractions. So. Uh, look, you know, it's probably a good thing that we get some sense of uh, a reputation, but we don't, we want, we want learners when they're giving us feedback on their learner surveys, on their smile sheets, to be thinking some, uh, some of the right things. You know, we actually, there's research to show that learners don't always know um, their own learning. They don't always know what learning designs are best. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but we can't rely on that. So if we ask them, what's the best, was this a good learning design or did you feel this was a good course? Their instincts are more likely to be on the wrong side than on the positive side, on the good side. So that's an issue. Uh, we, I've actually rewritten a not rewritten i've read I've, I've created a question that is designed to replace the net promoter score and what this question does is it sort of reminds people about why they're answering the question it focuses on the effectiveness of the course and i recommend that people actually give people this question or if you have to use the net promoter score, give the net promoter score after you first ask really good questions um, that get the learners thinking about good learning design. Great. And you don't want to share that question on air? We well, I can. It's, uh, I, I'll give you the first few answers. Okay. I don't want to belabor the point. It's, it's sort of made for visuals, not for audio, but... Um, if someone asked you about the effectiveness of the learning experience, would you recommend the learning to them? Choose one of the following. The learning was too ineffective to recommend. The learning was ineffective enough that I would be hesitant to recommend it. The learning was not fully effective, but I would recommend it if improvements were made to the learning, etc. 
So you can see we're sort of hinting, and again, what I recommend after that you've given them other questions to focus them uh, on learning factors that do matter. Uh, now you're sort of saying, you know, not did you like the course, are you satisfied in general, but was it effective, would you recommend it? So it sort of hints to the learner to think is about it, the effectiveness of the course. If the learning isn't evident immediately, in other words, it's not a process or a skill that I can practice in that moment uh, at the end of the class or pass a performance test at the end of the workshop, if, it, if it's something that takes time or requires me to go back and practice on the job and receive further feedback, Am I even capable of evaluating the efficacy of my learning? Well, you're never going to be perfectly capable. Um, but uh, if we're going to ask a question about this, about whether people like the course or whether they think they're able to uh, learn it, let's ask a question that gives them a higher likelihood of giving us uh, information that's valid and relevant. Got it. Got it. And so the, the, the problem is, is that NPS doesn't anchor people in thinking about learning efficacy. It anchors them in terms of just whether they liked it or didn't. Exactly. Exactly. Now, you know, people could be thinking the right thoughts, right, when they're answering the question, but they may not be. And so we want to just push more people to think about the right things. Now, I have actually... Uh, there's a somebody posted these uh, an article about NPS on LinkedIn uh, just this week, uh, and recommending this is an article in one of the big uh, magazines in the L and D field, and they recommend using NPS. And so um, uh, there's a big debate on LinkedIn because LinkedIn is nice to have these discussions, and. Uh, let me give you some of the reasons people think that they should use the net promoter score. Okay. And then you can react to these. All right. Yeah. All right. So uh, NPS is a language business leaders know, so we should use it. Okay. My reaction is irrelevant. Why is that irrelevant? Don't, don't we want to connect? We're, we're trying to build uh, learning that's going to improve the business. We need to get resources from our, organization from our senior leadership. Why isn't that important? Well, it's important, but the question of whether a business leader can understand that immediately or through language that isn't related to learning, uh, if that's the way to do it, that's, uh, it's an ineffective metric for learning. So I can couch things in all sorts of ways that business leaders would understand that is more directly related to what learning is and how learning functions. But Net Promoter doesn't get at whether someone actually learned something. It gets at whether someone likes something. And that is not a relevancy when we evaluate good outcomes. That's great. And, you know, let me piggyback on that and say, if your senior leadership uh, knows that you want to use the NPS to evaluate training, uh, they should fire you. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I totally agree. Why are you using a marketing tool for learning? You crazy people. You're fired. Or right, move on to marketing. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's true. All right, here's another one. Uh, the NPS gives students and learners, I don't know if they're different, but <laughs> students and learners a way to give confidential and anonymous feedback on what they learned. Okay, this is uh, 
Well, there are so many problems with this one. First of all, any good survey can be anonymous. And the cool thing is any shitty survey can be anonymous. So whether NPS is the right tool, wrong tool, a good tool, or a bad tool, it can be anonymous. Whether we use an alternative, it can be anonymous. The next question is, should we even be surveying participants or looking in other ways to measure learning efficacy? That's a different question. Great. Here's another one. NPS is a great leading indicator of how much course content will be applied. It's also a very nice way to give your leadership evidence of the particular training is on the right track. I would love to see the studies that have indicated this and whose horse's ass that's come out of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How is it a leading indicator of how much the course content will be applied? I have no idea. Nope. I've never seen anything related to that. But may maybe it exists in a you know, somewhere out there in the multiverse. Maybe where Here's the rules one. and laws of physics don't apply. Here's another one. Uh, this person liked the NPS because it's all about trends, not really about the particular score. Trends in what? Well, you know, you're, 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 you, you asked uh, NPS question today, you asked it yesterday, you asked it the month before, and the month before that, you can see the trends. Okay, but again, I'm wondering what trends I'm watching. So again, is it a trend in people's sense of the course being fun? Is it a, uh, uh, the trend of the course being uh, reliable? Uh, is it good uh, word of mouth that the course was? Exactly. I have no idea what these trends are. You know, bad, a, a, a trend of bad data is still bad data. And okay, here's one final one for you. Uh, it's important for benchmarking purposes across our courses and across our industry. Oh, uh, I love this benchmarking thing. So, but if uh, similar to garbage in, garbage out, if I benchmark bad questions against other bad questions, we end up with bad information to begin with. Why don't we ask good questions? Why don't we ask good evaluative uh, queries? Why don't we do good research on efficacy and benchmark against that? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why would we benchmark with ba bad data? That is like superstitious behavior. All right, so Matt, just so you don't think uh, everybody on LinkedIn uh, was missing the point. So one person said, net promoter score is just a useless smile sheet boiled down to one useless question. Yes, I agree. End of segment. All right. Good. Muse, cue the music. <laughs> we move into our second segment then. Speaking of disagreeing with people, what do you think? Are we allowed to disagree with people in the learning and development field? Well, of course. I know. That's a banal question, isn't it? By the way, is it banal or banal? Uh, I know we could argue over it. I'm pretty sure it's banal. Banal, but, I think. Banal but this is, is probably a banal uh, entry into this discussion, isn't it? Yes. I probably shouldn't have banal. had it. I shouldn't have had those milkshakes right before. Too much sugar for me. By the way, that's a misnomer. I, I just read that, that that's an old wives' tale, that too much sugar makes you wild. Yeah, I heard that. Too. So, yeah. 
So, all right. So we're allowed to disagree, but my concern is that we also have this value that everyone has a right to their opinion and that opinions can sometimes not be equal uh, and that some opinions are often founded in good research methodologies and, and good science and other opinions are based on silly things. And so my, my thought is that there are different levels of disagreement and uh, it's important for us to understand the nuance between them. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, let's, let's uh, add some erudition. Ooh, I love that I word. Use the word banal like, or banal or, you know, <laughs> or whatever you do. Hey, so. all right. Let's have a conversation about the epistemic rationale between <laughs> the, no, sorry. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. So, um, not conflating the issue. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was famed. He was a, uh, a, a, a legislator. And Will will give you a free book if you can tell from which state he's from. Oh, I will. And no one's going to listen to this podcast. Yeah, this okay. is a test to see if we have listeners. He said famously, you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. Ooh, have you heard the variation of that? You're entitled to your own opinion as long as it's the same as mine? Yeah, I've heard that one. I hate that. Yeah, it's banal. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I find this to be uh, uh, an, interesting th an interesting topic given the world we're currently residing in and around fake news, fake facts, and and so forth. And uh, as we continually work with the debunking group on different uh, myths and misconceptions that are out there, uh, it seems like a highly relevant topic for us to think about how do we, how do we distinguish between an opinion and what a fact is, or an opinion and a belief versus uh, an argument that is completely grounded in, in evidence uh, and so forth. Well, it, it is tough in our field. Um, and there's obviously disagreements. You know, it's not, you know, some fields have a very strong common body of knowledge. And uh, it's very hard to deviate from that, from the, best practice recommendations in that field because everybody's on the same page. Everybody's been educated. Uh, they've gone through certain credentialing. Well, get, what, give, give, give me an example of a field like that. Uh, well, how about the medical field? Well, there's tremendous disagreement in the medical field about lots of things, uh, such as different surgical techniques, uh, different approaches to treating cancer, different, I mean, even doctors disagree on how to treat type 2 diabetes and uh, where the different protocols should lead based on sugar results and so forth. So there's tremendous amounts of disagreement within the constraints, the constraints of, of, a particular topic. Okay, well, let me clarify then. 
uh, in because I think you're right. So, uh, wait, wait, can you say that one more time? I think you're right, Matt. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Richter. I believe you are correct. Thank you, Dr. Talheimer. <laughs> so, uh, but there are certain things that the medical profession has a preponderance of agreement on. Yeah, like evolution and biology. and. No, I'm talking about the medical profession. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, the, I can just my see. point, like with certain chemical, there, there's no argument about certain chemical processes. There's no argument that, that uh, on the bigger scheme of things that there's such a thing as evolution. The argument is often in the mechanics. Right, and that to me is the difference in the learning field. In the learning field, we're not arguing mechanics. We're often, offer, often arguing between different universes, and that to me is the difference. We're not talking uh, often at the same hierarchical level with each other. Ah, true. So, yeah. give us some examples. Uh, well, one example is what is personality when we're talking about personality stuff, going back to our conversations around DISC and MBTI over the last couple of weeks, or we could talk about um, uh, the different ways in which people are globbing on to um, Arabian and, and his notions of how we interpret communication or, or things that people glob onto improperly and, and then uh, internalize it as, as, as the gospel, um, uh, such as um, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, things that, that these, these models, these tools uh, ha have become ingrained beliefs, not necessarily based on science or the recurrent research, but because people pervasively, continuously keep them in the mythology. So like the Addy model, the Kratu yeah. model. Yeah. Yeah, and rather than having a conversation about what does the evidence say, what do the data say, we're having uh, to, to push back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on, we, we have a fundamental problem here. And and it, be, it it often degrades to well I can believe whatever I want. And <laughs> well, so let's let's start. Let's back up a second. So, yeah. uh, are we arguing? Are we agreeing that there's a lot of disagreement in I the so. learning yeah. space? I think so. I mean, just look at the MPS, the comments you shared on MPS. That that shares. Yeah. That that opens a window to a, a very minor disagreement, but a disagreement nonetheless yeah. uh, in the space, right? Yeah. Well, I, I would. I'm in agreement. We're not going to disagree on this because uh, I th I see a lot of disagreements out there. Um, in fact, I I kind of see this as sort of an endemic problem in our uh, in our teams. You know, we have people that come onto our uh, our learning teams from all different backgrounds. And that's good in some way. That gives us strength of diversity of ideas uh, and perspectives. But at the same time, we're arguing about which design is better. 
Oh, well, and, and that, that leads to other way, questions around how we evaluate and what kind of criteria we're holding. And it kind of goes back to the conversation we had last week about the trade associations not being strong enough to provide a, a better framework uh, and hold people accountable for evidence-based thinking. Where are we going with this? <laughs> That's a good question. I think I highlighted this as an issue because it, it popped into my head as a problem, but I'm not totally sure I have a, a direction for us to go other than what we're already doing, which is hopefully this podcast uh, helps uh, contribute to the, to the discourse that evidence-based thinking is, is more effective. Um, hopefully the, the work that our friends Guy and Clark and Patty Shank and, and, and that group of, of folks are doing help consolidate the way people are thinking around evidence-based thinking. But uh, I'm not sure I have a direction other than to highlight this as an issue. And Well, I think, you know, you're really, you're hitting on something there um, that I'd like to comment on. You know, there's, there's wisdom from the research, uh, but the research isn't perfect. So we have to uh, try it out. We then have to evaluate our results and get, you know, we have to create uh, those feedback loops. I don't know if we talked about that before. Um, it's a big uh, topic of mine that I like to revisit because it's so important. Um, but research isn't the only source of wisdom. There's experience as well. Now, I actually think our experience in our field is in some ways deficient because we're not really getting good feedback on our learning interventions. So I create something. It can be in any field whatsoever, engineering, architecture, medicine, uh, fixing a car, whatever. I do something, and then I want to look at the result because when I look at the result, I can learn from that, right? So, but what data are we getting about how good our learning is? If I'm a trainer, I can look in people's eyes and I can see whether they're enjoying it, whether they seem to be getting it, whether they're tuning out or not. But I'm not really able as a trainer to go down and know whether they've really deeply understood this. I'm probably not going to see whether they've actually tried to implement it, et cetera. We're relying on, you know, ineffective smile sheets. We're not getting good feedback. So we're sort of left in the dark. And I think in some sense, that's one of the reasons we do argue so much because we have no grounds to stand on. We don't say, Oh, well, let's try. Oh, you think it's that? Oh, that's great. Well, why don't we try that out? Um, I just sort of see us in a system where we're not really getting that. Well, I, think, I think that's a great point. And I also think that um, that experience sometimes worries me in the absence of, of good data and information too, right? So uh, th there's a gentleman I met who's been doing L&D work for 30 years, 40 years. And I would not call him the most competent person I've ever met in this field. And part of it is because he relies completely on these myths and misconceptions we've been attacking. Hmm. And the issue is when you, you I, I would never throw him under a bus with his bosses or clients. That would be inappropriate. But 
when I listen to them talk about him, uh, they talk about his wealth of knowledge, his wealth of experience, and that they just trust him. And this is, this is all good, but his experience is actually stopping people from questioning and challenging, from asking for that feedback or offering it, or even saying, can we A-B that? Uh, and, and test it out because his experience belies some misbegotten belief that he knows what he's doing. Well, but you know, I mean, so let's take, let's say we have the group of the smartest research to practice people in our field and we get them in a room, we're designing some learning. We're still going to have disagreements. Who else would be with you and me? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, well, just, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Clark Quinn, Carl Cop. Will would be in that room. I would. Yeah. And, and you know, we, there'd still be disagreements. So then I guess the question is. But those disagreements aren't going to be. But no one, no one in that room disagrees with taking an evidence-based approach. And, and no one in that room rejects the notion of, of uh, certain tenets around evaluation, and no one in that room is going to object to certain basics. Your objections well, are again in the how. Well, no, I, I, I no, there, there's some basics that well, I'll give you an example. Okay. If maybe this is too much of a digression, and we can no, cut it out. But I actually, like this. This is cool. So uh, there's this notion that we should. Um, we should guide our learners through learning as opposed to letting them discover things on their own. Okay. And, and the research that's been done is pretty clear that guided uh, instruction or guided, even guided discovery is better than just letting the learners flop around on their own. Um, there, that's inefficient, et cetera, et cetera. But my concern is this. Without naming names, who, who, uh, who, who's, who, who's arguing that? Uh, there's, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to name names, but I mean, I can't think of anyone in our, our group who's saying that guided learning is less effective. Than well, that. so, okay. So, so here's, here's the thing. I am going to argue that, you know, maybe we don't know everything about this. Okay, because here, here's, my, here's my thought on this. Okay. A lot of the research is, uh, you know, researchers are like anybody else. They are going to try to test something in a way that's relatively easy to test. So we can test things like, you know, if you do guided, if you do some kind of instruction on algebra, right, you can give people algebra problems and you can see whether the uh, guided instruction was better than the non-guided instruction, mm -hmm. right? And so what's going to happen is we're going to give people algebra problems, and they're going to try to solve them. Great, okay? So that's what we do. But what we haven't measured is other things. We haven't measured, well, wh what about people's um, ability to be creative with math? concepts. Maybe if we let them muck around a little bit, they'd be more creative, but it's harder to ma measure creativity. So I'm a little bit 
you know, you know, I think there, I think the research, scientific research, has some blind spots as well. So you get all those people in the room. Will Tallheimer is going to argue? Well, come on, guys, we're not really sure about this because of this, this, and this. Yeah, but listen to yourself. You're talking. Uh, I wish you could actually see me, but you're, you're the 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 boundaries from which you're talking are much thinner than many of the folks out there who are arguing in favor of using MBTI or learning well, styles, fine, but, right? But that's fine, but it's We're still, talking about a small, small gap of disagreement here. I, I, okay, well, that's fine, but still, no matter who we are, we're going to have disagreements. And then the question sure. is, how, what's the best way to have those disagreements? Well, uh, and I'm so, not sure that I I'm not sure that I have in my back pocket, you know, uh, an explicit list of do this. Well, I I, I, I have a list, but oh, the list I do have a list. I came prepared oh, good. for this segment, but my list is not validated by research because I could not find a methodology that has been tested or evaluated. So I don't have one we can recommend with the full weight of science behind it. But what I have seen and what comes up over and over again is not advocating for your position, but first understanding theirs. So if I can ask you a whole series of questions to get you to clarify your view and your perspective, then I can... Uh, get to a point where I understand the commonality between our two perspectives. And then we can start to have our conversation around that commonality. So step one, really ask a ton of questions to get Will's perspective. Step two, understand where within Will's perspective there's a common component or hopefully one. And then step three, use that commonality as a starting point to now start to share your perspective. And that seems to be a solution that works, but I can only say it works for me. I can't sounds, say it, I can't say it, it, it's a, a true winner. It sounds good as, as a first case. Yeah. And I, again, I would, you know, where we can, let's do some AB testing. Let's do some. I, I think you and I should disagree more. So okay. well, I'm gonna can you send me this list so I can make sure we go through it. All right. Sounds yes, yeah, step one, two, and three. I mean I forgot. You're old and sometimes you forget things. Oh my but, god. Oh. Yeah, I know you're gonna kill me. <laughs> Which brings us I know I think I'm gonna have to start talking in a in a gravelly voice. Have have you seen that new Facebook thing? Uh where you can take a picture of yourself and then it shows you what you'll look like thirty years from now? You know, that's a Russian probe and you should not do it. Yeah, I read about that, but, you know, I, I, don't, not, see any, uh, I don't see any evidence that it's really Russian. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm kidding, not, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Popular Mechanics said it's Russian, so. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's a magazine we should trust. That's right. So it's all science. Actually. <laughs> anyway, speaking of science, should we move on to our third segment? That would be excellent. And Thank we you. have our guest, Tiagi, joining us. So let's do it. Right now, we are joined by Tiagi. Hi, Tiagi. How are you? Hello, Matt. How are you? Hello, Will. How are you? Hey, Tiagi. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
So we are excited to have you uh, be a part of this segment because uh, Will and I have been struggling with uh, what do we call ourselves in terms of what kind of uh, title or description we use when we talk to others about what we do in, in, in our jobs. And um, especially given that a lot of the functions uh, we're a part of kind of uh, have melded together in many ways uh, as we've advanced. So what do you call yourself when people ask, uh, what do you do? I explain, uh, people usually ask me, what is Will, uh, what is Will called? I say, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> <laughs> He's a man for all seasons. And when people ask me, what do you call yourself? I don't know what they want, me, want, want to call me. One of the things I've heard you do uh, or say, Tiagi, when people uh, talk to you about this or you're running one of your workshops is that trainers are also designers and designers should be trainers and that these things happen concurrently. So. Yes. So ha has that changed your view or perspective on, on how people should designate themselves? Or One of the problems I have, Matt, is when I'm required to designate myself, I don't know because I'm a combination of a writer, a presenter, a trainer, a facilitator, an instructional designer, and a magician. So how best should I describe myself? I don't know. We need to have a label only if you are serious about marketing. I, the way I'm marketed is, they say, call Tiagi. And they don't say, call an instructional designer and things of that nature. So I'm a combination of various things. Maybe Will knows a single word or a label which takes into account these various skills. I, you know, that's, that's uh, I think, I, I had argued in, in, in on the internet of a certain word, but now I think we, we should just call people, what, what do you do for a living? I'm a Tiagi. <laughs> yeah, the new, and, and by the way, we do own the, the, uh, the uh, copyright to that name. Tiagi, I think uh, I want to uh, just push back a little bit on that because that works really well given that you're well known and it works really well from a consulting perspective perspective but if I'm an in-house uh, trainer I'm an in-house designer the way companies function is to designate a specific role in, and uh, I think one of the challenges we face in the industry is that separation of whether you're working in-house in a specific capacity or you're taking on a consulting role as a general basis I always disagree with you and I always agree with Will. So <laughs> I'm waiting to see which way the wind is going to blow. <laughs> Yagi, let me ask you this. See, there's some popular names out there mm -hmm. uh, for those who are not trainers but who are developing instruction or learning. Mm -hmm. And those are instructional designer, learning designer, 
uh, and the hot one now is learning experience designer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you have any feelings either way for any of those? My my preference will is what will the client understand if I tell a client I'm a learning experience designer. I don't know if that is going to make sense to him. So if he asks for an instructional designer, I'm going to say, yes, I'm one. If he asks for a trainer, that is true. And if he asks for a human factors engineer, I will say, no, I'm not one of those. <laughs> okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So we need to connect uh, with our audience and the reasons that uh, we need this title. I think, though, that, that uh, I had a professor who once said, who the hell cares what we name it? Mm-hmm. Call it sunflower, if you want. What is it you want to do with it? And, and so I like the idea of focusing on function and less on, on uh, uh, the nomenclature. By the way, just to follow up on what you're saying, when people ask me, what does Will do, I tell them he takes research evidence, empirical research, and translate that in a way that you and I can use it. So that is the function is serving. What do you want to call him? I don't know, but that is what he does. But that's a that's a good point because it, it, that pigeons you into a corner, though, Will, right? And, uh, actually, yeah, it's it's a good and bad thing, right? It's a double edged sword because I do many as a consultant. In some ways, I need to do many things. Uh, we can argue whether that's a good strategy, and uh, as I like to say these days, I'm not a very good capitalist, so <laughs> I'm open to learning. Um, now, Tiagi, so, you know, one of the things that I argued was this hot new word, learning experience designer, was not quite right. So, and, and here's my thinking, that we don't or shouldn't think of ourselves as just designing experiences. Yes, we need to design experiences, but we also wanna make sure that we're creating performance, that we're enabling people to uh, take the learning and use it on the job. Uh, So I really think in some sense, learning experience designer is a step backward and I've argued I absolutely agree with you, Will, but I take exception to calling ourselves we create performance. I don't want to create performance. I want to create results, business results, personal results. Performance does not guarantee it will produce valued results according to Tom Gilbert, and I'm getting tired of people who are saying, I'm in the performance improvement business. Performance improvement is just a way to reach appropriate, valuable results. So this is just as an aside. 
No, that's a good point. That's a very good point. So the, so I, I didn't like instructional designer because it's not just about instruction. I didn't like learning designer because I thought that was too fuzzy. I didn't like learning engineer because it's too, uh, you know, it's all about only data and there's some issues there. What I recommended was the term uh, learning architect. Mm -hmm. The idea, not that we're architects, but that we are architecting. We are creating the foundations uh, which w where people can learn uh, for a reason. And uh, I went into this in great depth on uh, a blog post and got really interesting feedback. And I've posted this on LinkedIn and there's a vociferous debate about there. What's the best term? Uh, a lot of people agree with you. Say, hey, what does it matter what they call me? Uh, you know, it's what I do that makes a difference. I kind of see this as, uh, you know, we have to be practical. Obviously, if we're looking for a job, uh, we might want to put in instructional designer because that's what people use. We might want to put learning experience designer because that's what people are looking for now. Um, but at the same time, it would be nice to have a term that we could sort of more or less all agree with mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, that we could uh, feel good about as well. Well, and this this is uh, uh, this is again one of the, th the reasons I I think we need to distinguish between those who are independent and those working within companies, because practically speaking, the way companies are are set up, they're set up by different types of job bands, and and so on a practical level, if we don't take into consideration that a person is hired to do design but they're not allowed to go out and do training, which goes contrary to the way we talk about it in our work. Um, they, they, they struggle. Um, trainers don't do design. They have to take someone's design and learn it. And, and this is both problematic from a learning perspective, I think. So it, it yields bad results. But at the same time, I think there's a, a, a political component to, this that we have to take into consideration when we're trying to come up with what do we call ourselves within the industry. And that's how organizations are set up internally. And different organizations, Matt, uh, they are dropping instructional designer as a term. Completely, they, yeah. They are uh, dropping trainer as a term. So, uh, all my friends who started their life as a trainer have now become learning architects and things <laughs> of that nature or performance <clears throat> improvement consultants. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, one of the companies we're working with right now in the UK, they still distinguish between designers, trainers, and then they have learning consultants, and I'm never quite sure what they do. Um, but again, these are, are different ways in which they're organizing. Um, so I, know, I, I like, though, I will, you're the, in theory, I like the idea of having one designated uh, way of thinking about it. Um, so, Well, I, you know, I the agree. one thing, I, you know, one thing this shows is that our industry is in flux at the moment. We are moving from where we were to somewhere we're going. 
and uh, you know we things haven't solidified. So I think in some ways, just the fact that we're having the discussion and that there's so much passion around it suggests that something is happening, and that all of us in the field should be paying attention, and perhaps you know moving it in the direction uh, that is most valuable for our customers and for the field. All right. Uh, so I, I think I know the answer for Tiagi. So, uh, uh, but Will, I don't know your, your answer. Is there a, a word or a, a title that you would really be annoyed with if someone used it to describe you? I feel Will should feel insulted if somebody tells other people that he is a designer because he's far beyond a designer. Well, and I, Tiagi, I think, I think you should have a right to be annoyed if someone calls you a game designer and doesn't see all the rest of the things that you do. Exactly. Well, okay, so that, that, let's extrapolate that. I was talking to a mutual friend of ours. Uh, I won't we, share We his have name. friends? Mutual? <laughs> 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 at, at, <laughs> at least until the last email we just got. So, but uh, I was having a, a, a chat with a friend of ours, and he kept talking about Tiagi as the game guy, the guy who uses fun to enhance learning and uh, you know and it was my, my first reaction was wait a minute that's that's not Tiagi I mean he does create games but I think he would argue that he hates fun and uh, <laughs> is not and, um, and 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 so my first reaction was which, actually which? defensive <laughs> And it wasn't even me we were talking about. Um, but I think that, uh, I think another issue we have is people uh, don't like some of these ways in which we categorize the function. And so, uh -huh. yeah, you know, by the way, how do, how would you have reacted to that if you, if someone called you the game guy who's all about fun? I say yes. <laughs> Pay us. Yeah, fun as something which is immersive, which is engaging, not necessarily fun. Haha. <laughs> but uh, talking of this topic, we are uh, debating with the first ever course I had when I stepped off the boat and enrolled in Indiana University was uh, a course called what should we call our profession? It was conducted by Henry Byrne, who died three years after we conducted the course. And there was a big debate on whether we should call ourselves instructional technologies, performance technologies, instruction engineers, instructional architect, instructional whatever it is, or should we call so this debate has been going on for a long 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 time it's being revived as uh, will said because we are recognizably in a flux 
but we seem to have been in a flux whenever we want and anybody who wants to make a name in this field is uh, that's a simple thing which is to say hey we are not educational blank we are this or something like that so this is an interesting topic to discuss and i also feel this is a totally uh trivial useless unnecessary topic to discuss well i'm glad we invited you to that one yeah <laughs> just proving the point that tiagi doesn't like fun because he went and joined us so good i think we should probably end this topic on that note yes and and thank you tiagi for bringing that perspective uh that historic perspective that's very valuable hey I, i can't do anything else when you get to old you can always pull the history card <laughs> <laughs> excellent excellent so that moves us into our best and our worst and um so just to catch tiagi up in each episode as we close will and i like to share the best learning experience we either witnessed uh, or engaged in and the worst one and uh uh essentially this is the gossip section so will why don't you kick it off and uh, so we can model it for tiagi sure um i'm going to pick a personal uh learning experience and uh for a while now i've been trying to lose like 5 pounds and you know i broke my collarbone last year and i you know i have a little extra weight not a lot you know but a little extra weight and i wanted to do this and uh so i've had no success <laughs> I mean I've tried everything <laughs> tried mm. everything no success. So uh and part of me says well I'll just live with it you know whatever. Um but uh I got reinvigorated a couple weeks ago. And uh I've started exercising like 5 days a week and doing different things you know canoeing and playing tennis and going hiking and running and walking the dog all wow. that. What I found is You know, if I do something early in the morning, I just have a better day. And so the, my best of is that I've learned that hey, all this exercise is sort of the magic potion for lots of good things. So so far so good. And I haven't I still haven't lost much weight, but I feel better. Now the worst. Um I saw once again on LinkedIn the famous learning pyramid uh people remember mm. 10% of what they read 20% of what they hear 30% of what they uh see etc cetera, etc cetera. this is bad information we've known it's bad i've written about it a bunch of academics and i have gotten together uh they did most of the work but we we found out that this was originally from like 1913 with no research backing whatsoever but it's out there again so that's my worst of the week but it looks cool will it's in it does, a it's in it a does, nice triangle it is it is it does look good <laughs> thanks will tiagi do you have a best and a worst to share sure um i would let you decide whether this is best or the worst 
I was in Brownville, Texas, long time ago, attending a conference of people in special education, people who are teaching hard of hearing children. So I was scheduled for a one day workshop and the topic given to me was designing instructional experiences. And I went there and I said, hello everybody. I'm glad all of you are here. Do you remember what is the topic of my workshop? And several people immediately yelled out second language teaching. And that was a surprise because it was not the topic I was given. It was not the topic I'm ready. And I told them, folks, I was told my job is to do a session on experiential learning design. You are expecting a session on second language teaching. So let's do what we can in order to blend both of them together. You are all experts on second language teaching. I'm a recipient of second language instruction. So can you get yourselves into teams of five people and generate a list of suitable, appropriate, experience-based tips on how best to teach second language. For example, if you ask me, I will say, ask a group of people to pretend they are in a life, a life raft and it is slowly sinking and one of them has to be thrown overboard. Ask them to have a discussion on why they should not be sacrificed. But the only constraint is in this role play, you got to talk only in Spanish because we are teaching Spanish as a second language. So that's my example. You guys, as so what we did was to spend the whole day doing a series of activities during which the participants generated the content, evaluated the content, critique the useful content, came up with wonderful ideas. And my job was to keep my mouth closed and stand in the back of the room and get them doing things. And the evaluation smile sheet indicated later Apparently, many people said this was the best activity and the best session we attended. So that is my Texan experience in 1976. Excellent. Bueno. And we're supposed to tell you if we think that's the best or the worst? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Here is the other experience. During my doctoral dissertation, I taught a group of people how to do instructional design. So I had the trained group design an instructional package. I had an untrained group 
design and instructional package. They all, there was a total of 21 participants and they all designed the instructional package for the same audience on the same topic. At the end of all of these things, we took the instructional packages and used them with actual students and got the performance data from the students. We also had the instructional packages randomly mixed up and given to a group of professors who taught instructional design and asked them to arrange the different packages in order of the most effective, potentially most effective, to potentially least effective. And this was interesting. There was a correlation of 0.64 between the professor's ratings and the actual performance data from the students. The only rub was the 0.64 correlation was in the negative direction. <laughs> it was a negative 0.64. At that time, one of my advisors was Susan Marker. I told her about that, what happened. She said, that's not a surprise at all. Teachers are the worst people to evaluate the worth of any training package. And the professors are worse than teachers. So she explained to me, she has an index called It Figures Index. You give it to teachers and ask people which one is the best training package and whatever they say, you turn it upside down and what they consider to be the worst package usually turns out to be the best one and vice versa. So <laughs> that was my most horrible, bad experience as an instructional designer or as a trainer, which enabled me to learn a very useful lesson. Wonderful. Thank you. Tiger, so, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yes, sir. Uh, because one of the things you did, which is really fantastic, is you used uh, an A-B test or a random controlled trial or you know, uh, my God is getting technical good, now. Good, yes, good, sir. You used good research design there, uh, and you found something out. Now, the question is, why do you think more people are not doing that in our field? Because they're not going for a doctoral dissertation defense. Also, probably because people are so filled with mythology about training. They are told interesting training is effective training. People, when they have fun, learn more. You laugh, you learn. 
and it, everything is built on the pyramid. So you got to look at the pyramid and make sure it's on the top of the pyramid and so on. They are given a lot of mythology which apparently has face validity. Nobody says, okay, where is the data? Where is the beef? They just accept it and it makes them feel good. And they say, hey, I'm an inspiring trainer. So whatever I'm doing must be good, must be effective. Great. Good. Thank you. Thank you. So if you both will permit me, I'm going to brag about my daughter and be a, a proud father for a second, because that is my best of the week. So Leah has a job this summer as a, wow. an assistant teacher at her dance school uh, for the summer camp program. And these are 12 to 17-year-olds uh, who, are, who are studying dance uh, throughout the, uh, each day from you know, about six hours a day. And it goes for about a month. Uh, and one of the segments is an educational segment where they have to learn vocabulary and dance history. And so it's content heavy. And the teacher uh, on day one started lecturing the kids. And it was a two-hour bit of pain. In fact, uh, Leah said that this is her favorite topic in the world. And she was falling asleep. That It was that painful. So taking her role seriously, she went up to the teacher afterward and said, so I know this guy named Tiagi, and he builds activities so that people are engaged more, and she used the word fun, have more fun when they're learning. Can I redesign tomorrow's lecture for you and run these games and activities? And so she took the content from the teacher and she played three Tiagi games. And the kids had so much fun, but more importantly, were talking about the content all day because they kept replaying the games as they, they hung out and danced and did everything. And it was so successful, the teacher had to redesign the entire first week. <laughs> and so Leah has become an interactive uh, learning architect. Wow, that is impressive. I, I'm pretty proud of her. Yeah. My worst experience for the week, though, is centered around um, the misguided uh, notion of focusing heavily on instructor guides. So I was asked um, how much uh, a particular client should spend time on developing scripted instructor guides so that they can use lower uh, and less experienced, um, cheaper trainers. In other words, can they have an instructor guide that's focused on uh, telling the trainer exactly what to say, when to say it, and so forth? And the, the focus was less on having a good learning package or training package and more on ensuring that the quality of the trainer didn't have to be as good, that the trainer didn't have to have uh, the innate skills of adapting to the needs of the cohort or 
adjusting to problems as they come up or focusing on the objective in the classroom, but essentially uh, good enough to be able to get through the day so that the learners made it through. And so my worst is that we still have this pervasive need for uh, outcomes, our outputs, materials, um, having training guides, having a focus on uh, logistics that enable companies and clients and folks to invest not in the learning outcomes themselves, but in the activities that they believe probably incorrectly support them. So that was my worst for the week. That's, yeah, that's pretty bad. So there you have it. All right, we're going to wrap things up. But Tiagi, we want to thank you for, for joining us today. It's a pleasure talking to both of you. I'm wonderful. Thanks for inviting me. And have a nice rest of this session. All right. Can Thanks, we, can we, can we get here. Can we get you to come in for uh, as one of our rotated panelists? I'll be happy to do that. That would be great. That would be awesome. excellent. Will, I think that was our best show yet. Hey, keep getting better. I mean, keep I mean, getting younger and better looking. Oh, the world is good. Anyway, till next week. This is Truth in Learning. Uh, with the emphasis on learning or truth? Uh, and the emphasis of in, uh, creating a more perfect union or something like that. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe we're going there. Okay. <laughs> Till next week. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Matt.